should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, 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 welcome. Yes, it is me. It's my voice. Like right here, right now, this feels so, so good to be back in the studio I had to do a lot of soul searching after San Francisco Pride. And, and you know what? I don't know a lot of things, but what I do know is that uh, this is home. This is me. And this is what I love to do. So thank you for welcoming me back here on the Progressive Voices Network. And the great thing is uh, I'm doing this show on Tuesday, which means it's my favorite day, which means it's Taco Tuesdays or... It means that John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. Hello, Michelle. <laughs> Great to be back with you. It's good to see your face. <laughs> I always enjoy doing the show, you know, with you rather than without you, actually. Um, I think we, I, I don't know, I, I like that you're really smart. You offer intelligence to the program. <laughs> I'll try not to let you down. <laughs> Anyways, welcome to the Michelle Meow Show. I am your host. It is your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. Even though it feels good to be here in studio, it has been incredibly depressing um, here in America. I think, you know, I, I, I guess since Orlando for me personally, and it just feels like a it's all gone downhill from there, but I'm, I'm positive that we can all mobilize and unite together to make some changes. Let's check in with John, who hosts his program here on the Michelle Miao Show, which is the week-to-week political roundtable talk. And uh, there's a lot going on politically as well. I mean, I guess it's, it is good news. Bernie Sanders has officially endorsed Hillary Clinton. He's endorsed Hillary Clinton, um, and uh, it was a pretty strong endorsement. So I think all the... The, the Democrat unification kind of is 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 happening that they've long been waiting for. It's kind of like just when you know Hillary and Obama had to finally come together, and it, it's a painful thing, but uh, it finally happened. Um, the fact that it happened now probably had something to do with the FBI finally saying no, we're not going to indict Hillary, and so you know the the, the last uh, uh, Sandinistas, Sanders Nistas, finally realized, oh hell, fine. Let's touch on that really quick, because I did want to ask you. So the FBI has closed the case against Hillary and this whole email scandal. But as I understand it, there's another department that has reopened its case or its own. Actually, that's exactly right. It's reopened the case. And it don't read more into that. It's not like they said, aha, the FBI got it wrong. But they had a case going and then they froze it when the FBI's case was going on. They said it wasn't appropriate for us to be doing this while the FBI is doing it. So it's really just, okay, and now we're back to where we were. We now have to finish our internal thing. Who knows what they'll find? It'll pro- I, I'm assuming it'll really focus on the, you know, f- classification issue and, and whether she intentionally did anything wrong. And really that seemed to be the core of, of how they rated it in the FBI. Okay, did they intend to do anything? I mean, mm. what was their intent? And no, you know, clearly Hillary Clinton wasn't out to 
has secrets to the Russians. If only, you know, uh, these people really focused on, <laughs> I'm sure, countless other scandals. <laughs> well, and, and uh, Elizabeth Warren th- this morning was Facebooking about that, saying, you know, while we're reeling from all this stuff. It is funny, you mentioned the week-to-week uh, political roundtable. Uh, one of our panelists uh, is a Hoover Research Fellow, uh, Carson Bruno, and he was talking about how he just returned from a vac- two-week vacation in Croatia. And uh, it, it, he was delight, delighted because he could just, he disconnected from the news. And so, you know, so as he comes back and he's, you know, getting back in the swing of things on, on this past Friday, it was like, oh, hell. I mean, <laughs> it was a lot of really horrible news to suddenly come back to. Right, right. Yeah. Well, make sure you tune in Fridays at four o'clock Pacific Standard Time here on the Michelle Miao Show. John Zipper with his week to week political roundtable talk. Some great guests come through the program. And uh, we also have aired, you know, the Black Lives Matter forum that uh, Commonwealth Club and San Francisco Pride myself had worked on. And that was a, a very, very, very incredible conversation. I think that that's the thing that people are missing is that mm-hmm. they jump on social media and go ahead and, 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 and talk about their opinions, their opinions, which is fine. That's what social media is for. But when it's um, these issues that really impact and affect people in their lives, I think the best thing that you can do is arm yourself with information and education before speaking out and open and, and um, let's, let's really do, you know, create some change. And I think that's what today's program is going to be about. And not just what we're talking about, politics that impact our lives, but here in San Francisco, the ongoing conversation about housing um, is definitely heating up, but uh, uh, I, I don't know. It's like heating up, but then it's like heated. It's just kind of stayed this way. And there's a lot of things going on when it comes to housing. So let's get today's program started. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our guest today is a housing rights organizer with Causa Justa, uh, Just Cause, which is an organization here, a housing rights organization in San Francisco. And they're working on a very important campaign that we want to talk about. But before we talk about the campaign, let's talk about the housing crisis here in San Francisco. Let's welcome Maria Zamudio to the program. Maria, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. I um, am excited to talk to you today, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that, I mean, every day we can talk about what's going on with housing in San Francisco, but what um, what scares me the most is the fact that there it feels like the, the bleeding, you know, just continues. It's not stopping. Like, even if leadership or, or politicians or people here in San Francisco are acknowledging the fact that we have a housing crisis, it just seems like the displacement and the evictions continue. Am I right? Um, yeah, it can definitely feel like that, for sure. Um, I think one of the things that inspires me um, and makes me kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel is the fact that we are making um, an incredible amount of gains almost every year. We pass a new tenant kind of protection law, or we're able to keep another senior in their home, and it, it, it's these small victories that I think, for me at least, accumulate into knowing that we are we're at, we are able to... to um, work towards some kind of stabilization, but you're right. I mean, I think um, having our political leaders and our elected officials understand that there is a housing crisis is really only one of one step towards that. Um, um, we're a housing and an immigrant rights organization, um, and so we're, we're saying, we often say that our political line is we're fighting local and global displacement, um, uh, and we're fighting for human development. Um, 
and what that means for us is we, we need to acknowledge that um, our government system focusing on um, kind of people-centered solutions versus solutions that are all about profit are only half of it, right? We also need um, businesses and kind of our, our economic structures to also acknowledge that we can't just keep making a very small handful of people incredibly rich. We need to be ensuring that the solutions and the systems that are out there are actually for people and for the civilization of our neighborhoods. So what are some of the uh, laws or changes you would actually like to see those political leaders make? Well, I think um, one of the things that's, that's happening right now that we're seeing a lot of is um, San Francisco is in a huge moment of growth. I mean, I feel like San Francisco has these waves of growth. Um, and and to, to add a little bit of context, right, this isn't something that, that this housing crisis isn't something new for San Francisco. San Francisco has a history of being a place where land is often contested by people with resources, with a ton of resources, and people that have been there for a long time, right? So we think about um, from from Spanish colonization and having people being pushed off um, their native land to the gold rush, which again was a, a huge push for uh, this like economic growth for a small number of people to the first wave of gentrification when with the dot com boom to now it's this it's this continued process of a small group of very well resourced folks with a lot of money, trying to make more money and pushing people out, um, and the way that it's manifesting now is in the form of mass condo developments all over the city when the city's really in, in an affordability crisis and what we really need to be building is affordable, deeply affordable housing that's community planned and controlled. Um, and, and, and I, think, yeah, I, mean, I, I think a lot of folks from other cities maybe don't quite understand as much that San Francisco is a very small city mm-hmm. geographically. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like Chicago yeah. where there's just tons of space and they can always find some place to develop something. Um, so when, you know, when you're talking about kind of these groups kind of pitted against each other for a spot, it's not like they've got, you know, endless areas to go to. So um, it, it, you're right. It's not new, but it is acute right now because of uh, the, the economic boom and the folks who aren't booming with it. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think the the other pieces of context that is really important to remember, San Francisco is a very small city. It's a very small um, kind of geographic area. Um, San Francisco is also a majority renter city, and right. the majority of the housing stock is rent-controlled, and it's renter-occupied, right? So um, when we talk about the eviction crisis, we're really talking about the majority of residents within San Francisco who are having to fight tooth and nail to stay in their home. And you can go to any bar, you can walk down any street, you can go to any bus stop, you can go to any restaurant and you will hear people talking about either they're being evicted or they're afraid of being evicted or they think it's coming and it's just, it's kind of an ever-looming um, scare, right? So we're off in San Francisco and really the Bay Area generally because um, San Francisco, the things that happen there ripple out to the rest of the Bay Area and, you know, if you're in Oakland, you are afraid that you're going to get um, evicted. If you're in um, Daly City, you're, gonna, you're afraid you're going to get evicted. So it's not just not just San Francisco either. It's also a regional issue, um, and it's it's the majority of our folks, right? So San Francisco, if if a landlord wants your apartment because it's worth a ton, because he can turn it into a condo, or he wants to turn it into a condo, or he wants to demolish it and sell the land to build more condos, um, they need to evict you. And so that's kind of what we've been. I think that's kind of why um, 
it is so acute right now because we're literally talking about people who don't live in the, in the city, people who are from other parts of the country, from other parts of the world who are coming in and saying, I don't really care that you've been living in this house for 40 years and I don't care if you're a 99-year-old woman. This is, I want, I want this property. Can you, can you put any numbers on it? I mean, what are, are evictions up a certain percentage or certain numbers over what they were, say, in 2005 or 2000 or something like that? We know that. Yeah, so evictions have been steadily growing um, since 2010. There have been over 8,000 evictions since 2010. Um, well, from 2010 to 2015, so those are the numbers that we have. So in a five-year period, we've seen over 8,000 evictions go through the rent board, right? So this is based on rent board information. Um, there's a lot of other evictions that never go to the rent board. These are um, evictions that um, aren't happening kind of in, that are happening more in the shadows So people that are um, forced to leave or harassed into leaving or um, leave because they don't know what their rights are. So um, the number the number that we do have is 8,000 from 2010 to 2015, but we know that there is more than that, um, especially in Latinx and Latino communities where the tactics for harassment can also be connected to kind of criminalization and, and kind of the militarized aspect of our neighborhood. So when a Latino family gets harassed into leaving their apartment, um, it's not often kind of on the books in in the light going through the rent board process, right? A lot of the time it's, I need you to leave in two days, and if you don't leave, I'm calling ICE, our hmm. immigration enforcement. Um, and so we, we, we know that we have this number, 8,000, but we also know that there's more than that. So when we think about an 8,000 number, that's, that's more, that's over... Um, a thousand evictions a year, right? This is a five-year period that I'm talking about. And if we think about how many people are, are in all of those households, even if we're just thinking of a two-person household, which we know is not the average, that's over 16,000 people who are being impacted by an eviction. And even if we're able to win all of these evictions, right? Because we do, we, we do have uh, tools and we are able to win. Um, we are able to win evictions. We, we know that we're able to keep people in their homes. It's still a process that impacts people, that creates trauma, that uh, stresses them out, right? It's still this, this huge kind of upheaval of your life. It, it, um, it is. And there's, in fact, a, a quite a bit of new research on this, just how it, it really can tear apart families and, and communities. I guess with... With, we we know those those numbers are growing. Do we have? Do we know what say they say it's a thousand a year or whatever? What were they before this this boom or something like that? I mean, what? How much has it grown? I think people really kind of need to get a sense of how is it? You know, because there are always going to be people who are getting evicted. Has it doubled mm-hmm. or has it gone up ten percent? Or if, I, I mean, I I don't know the answer. I, I but I'm curious because I that's kind of what I keep trying to get my grasp around just how much worse is it than you know you, you hear the individual stories kind of pop up I don't know if that happens all the time or if that really has increased so I mean you're right evictions are kind of a constant in, in San Francisco again given it's, it's a majority tenancy and most of our housing is under um is under rent control, but evictions have been going up, especially post Great Recession. Right, so if we're thinking from um, before 2010, when um, the economy was in a really different place, um, there wasn't the there wasn't necessarily the same amount of kind of just capital uh, in mm-hmm. the city. There weren't as many investors going around. Um, 
and so evictions were not as high. So we were seeing, um, and I, I don't, I'm trying to find the numbers specifically for you because I do. You know, yeah, maybe, maybe you know, we, we're going to have to go and break um, anyways here in, uh, in a couple seconds, and then we can come back in the second half of our conversation, Maria, and maybe touch on that if possible. But I do, I do get where, you know, the, the question is going. Maybe we don't have the exact number or stat or percentage of increase, but there is an increase. It's like all of a sudden a thunderstorm came and it's like raining heck of hard when it was kind of raining before. Like if <laughs> we could just kind of paint that picture for people. I mean, um, and, and, and yeah, I, before all of the eviction started happening here and the kind of the numbers that you're talking about, we were going through a recession uh, and people were losing their homes due to foreclosure and around, not maybe exactly in San Francisco, but around the Bay Area. So this, the, I think the, uh, the economic struggles of certain communities has been ongoing in the last 10 years, um, if we're going to talk specifically about the Bay Area. So, Maria, let's go to break. And when we come back, I want to I talk about some of those bad practices um, that's really terrorizing people's lives. And then we'll end with talking about what your organization is doing in hopes that other cities who are going through gentrification might be able to take those tools as well. So stay with us, okay? Okay. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. 
Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this Tuesday. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us and co-hosting. So exciting. Our special guest is on the phone, uh, San Francisco housing rights organizer, Maria Zamudio. And uh, we are all just having this discussion about San Francisco and the housing crisis. Uh, we'll later talk to you about um, Maria's work and the organization that she's with, with a special fundraiser and some tools that I think can also help if your city is experiencing something similar. So Maria, right before we went to break, um, we kind of were talking about, you know, we know for a fact that the eviction rate has increased in at least the last you know, few years. Um, but anything you, you want to add to that? I mean, I think I wanted to, to give some other numbers um, to kind of flesh out the story of the eviction crisis and move necessarily from how many evictions we're having a year to kind of what is the impact in our neighborhoods, right? Like, what's the demographic mm-hmm. impact? Yes. So um, part of what Philadelphia does and part of why I'm so proud and honored to be um, an organizer with this organization is that we fight. Uh, we fight gentrification. We fight local and global displacement for um and fight for human development, but we also do it in a way that's like very conscious of um, racial justice and making sure that we um, we organize Black and Latino working class tenants. We're trying to work towards Black and Brown unity, um, and we also work to ensure that um, Black and Latino working class tenants and working class homeowners are actually the ones that are at the front lines of of setting the the solutions. Right, we know that our communities are actually on the front lines of this struggle. There's a um, when we think about neighborhoods that are getting gentrified, it's, historic, it's neighborhoods that have been historically divested from, which are Black and Latino neighborhoods, working class Black and Latino neighborhoods. And so, given that our our neighborhoods are are ground zero for the for gentrification, we also know that that means that we are the ones that have the solutions and the experiences that can actually build the can build the solutions. Um, so. Um, Kind of yeah, thank thank you so much we're doing. for saying that because I know that the Mission District in San Francisco would be, uh, you know, a, I I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the neighborhoods that have been highly impacted by evictions of Black and Brown mm-hmm. working class people, and obviously because the Mission, historically speaking, has been home to, uh, you know, the Black and Latino community. Um, from what we know here in San Francisco, I want to I want to hang on that for just a little bit before we talk about some of these tools that the organization is working on because of everything that's happening here in this country. And I think the root of what yeah. um, the dialogue that not a lot of people are touching upon is the fact that poverty and oppression and lack of opportunities, you know, all of this contributes to the systemic problems we face when it comes to racism and a lot of the isms, and that's inclusive of, you know, homophobia, transphobia, et cetera. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that in, in terms of like maybe the experiences that you may have faced um, and kind of the hate that you <laughs> may have experienced in working with uh, these communities? It's when you take something as basic as like, you know, housing away from someone mm-hmm. and, and the desperation mm-hmm. there, y- you know, th- these things all connect, right? They do. So um, we're we're very clear that with gentrification um, also comes state violence, right? So if a neighborhood that was predominantly black or predominantly Latino and working class all of a sudden gets a ton of wealthy white residents, um, those wealthy white residents are going to call the police on their neighbors because they're not um, because they feel scared because they are moving into a neighborhood that is. Um, 
you know, they have a bunch of prejudices and, and, and stereotypes in their mind of who their neighbors are and what a neighbor looks like. And there, you know, and, and, and there is also um, an existing kind of ideology around gentrification that is we are cleaning neighborhoods up, right? So um, from uh, redevelopment in the Western Edition in the 50s and 60s that was supposed to quote-unquote clean up the slums to um, the, the, the fight that we had a couple years ago on 16th Street where there were posters all over saying that let's clean up the plaza. Um, this idea that gentrification is going to make neighborhoods better by cleaning them up is actually just really coded language for we will, we will evict or we will incarcerate all the black and brown folks that are in this area who um, are working class, who are poor, who are homeless, and we're going to make it uh, more comfortable for wealthy white residents, right? So this is kind of an ideology that we hear from residents, uh, from, from, or from, from new residents, right? Residents that are gentrifying our neighborhoods all the way up to policymakers, right? So um, we have planning commissioners that say, well, I really like the changes in the mission. I think that it, the mission looks much nicer now than it did before because there's less homeless people around. So this kind of ideology creates um, a, a, a militarized police presence in our neighborhoods that leads to state violence, right? So we have trigger-happy police officers. More of them are in our neighborhoods because they keep getting called by um, white, wealthy residents. And then we have... Um, these examples of, of state violence and mm -hmm. people being murdered from, um, yeah, we just had two homeless folks be murdered um, in, in the last month in San Francisco. And, of course, there's all, you know, the, the murders that have, have just happened in Austin Sterling and Philando Castillo. And so it's just, we, we need to recognize the ways in which gentrification and state violence are actually connected and are part of um further criminalization of, of our neighborhoods. Um, and, and the impact that that, that that has is, right, so you connect state violence, you connect gentrification, you connect eviction, um, and you have a neighborhood that looks really different than what it used to. So in um, from, two, from 2000 to 2015, or sorry, 2013, that's the thir 13 years, the mission dropped 28% on its Latino population. Um, and if uh, the legislative... Um, the budget and legislative analyst uh, for the city of San Francisco uh, had a report last year um, while we were fighting for Proposition I, which was going to put a temporary staff on the construction of luxury condos in the mission until we were able to identify a plan for how we were going to build the necessary amount of affordable housing. Um, that report showed that if we continue the eviction rates as they are in the mission and if we continue um, to consistently build for luxury residents while, while um, working class residents are being evicted and don't have a place to live after they, they're, they're kicked out of their homes if they're not able to win their evictions, then we're going to lose about 8,000 Latinos um, by 2025. And by 2025, the, yeah. the, the total percent drop is going to be 31%. So in uh, 25 years, we'll have lost a third of the Latino population um, in in, no, we'll, we'll have lost half of the Latino population in the mission. Um, and, you know, the history around black displacement in San Francisco is, is really clear. San Francisco, of all major cities in, in the United States, has some, has some of the lowest uh, uh, black population of the whole country, right? So we're, we're at the bottom. Oh, I, um, I, I knew that. I moved here from New York and Chicago, and I was mm -hmm. astounded how, the, how 
unblack the city was. I, I just wanted to actually throw out there for, for our listeners. There's a book that might want to look into. It's called Evicted Poverty and Profit in the American City. It's by Matthew Desmond. Um, and it really gets yes. into, I mean, you're familiar, it really gets into the downward spiral a lot of families can go into when they're evicted. The kids, mm-hmm. you know, have to change schools. Their, their uh, performance in school goes down. Obviously, there's, there's all that emotional baggage that comes with having been kicked out of your home sometimes with, you know, just hours notice. Um, so um, the evicted, it, it, it's a book some folks might want to pick up to inform themselves on this. Thanks, John. Thanks. And Maria, we've got a couple minutes, so I want to make sure our listeners are, this is the most important part in which we're going to tell you yeah. about the the uh, Renters Rise Up $30,000 in Five Days program. Um, this really is so significant because it's like the community coming together. So tell us about, about it and tell us how our listeners can support it. Yeah, so we're in a really exciting moment. Um, so just to kind of lift this up a little bit, we kind of acknowledge the, the problems, but we also do a ton of organizing, leadership development. We have, we've been able to win um, a, a tenants' rights protections almost every year through our coalition work with the San Francisco Anti-Displacement Coalition. We're currently finding a 350-unit luxury development on 16th Mission um, through our Blessed 16 Coalition, and we've, we've been winning, right? So um, that project wanted to have... Um, shovels in the ground and something built by 2015. It's not 2016. They don't even have their permits yet. So um, the, the, the wins that we're able to, to, to gain are, are, are significant, they're real, and they're amazing. And so if you want to be a part of um, helping us put these solutions together, we are trying to raise $30,000 in five days. Today is day two of our five-day crunch uh, campaign fundraising extravaganza. Um, and if folks want to donate, um, you can go onto our Facebook page and look for us, Go Sajusa Just Cause, and click on the 30K in five days link. And you can also find us on Instagram. You can find the link there. Um, you can also go to our website, cjjc.org. It's a little harder to find on our website, so I would suggest going on our Facebook page or our Instagram first. Um, but that's 30K in five days. We have until Friday. And really, if folks are able to give $5, $10, $15, um, anything, anything really helps. Um, if you give $25, you get a poem, um, which is a really beautiful poem called uh, Trip to the North by Aya de Leon. Um, and if you give more than $75, you get a really incredible um, poster. So there's, there's definitely some goodies there for folks who give more. Um, but really, I think the, the best the best gift is knowing that you are able to support an organization doing incredible on-the-ground work that's having real impact, right? So we're talking about 8,000 evictions a year. We're, we're able to see folks in, in those situations. And um, while there are 8,000 evictions a year, they're not there. We're hoping that all those people don't end up evicted. And like I said, we are able to stop a lot of them, um, but that, that requires us to, to be able to, to continue to do our work. So Maria. we really appreciate everything. Yes, no, we appreciate you and the work that you're doing and your organization. And so we'll also post that and repost it on our social media to help out. Um, and uh, I'm sure that, you know, uh, whoever I talk to or come across today, I'll make sure that they put down their $5. Wink, wink. <laughs> anyway, Maria, thank you so much for joining us here on the program. Thank you for having me. We're going to go to break now, but when we come back, we have more on the Michelle Meow Show. So don't go away.
Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years, and uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now, because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody, and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis, is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people, and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. And, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for Spotlight you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. And welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this Tuesday. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us co-hosting. So exciting to have him here. Um... By the way, like I said, I am going to repost that information of where you can support Causa Justa or Just Cause, a uh, housing rights organization here in the San Francisco Bay Area. I mean, the one thing I want to say about that is if you're really serious about you know creating change, making an impact and um, getting rid of you know, racist systems, the best thing that you can do, I think, is start off by also paying attention to poverty and things like housing, like things like jobs. And those are ways in which you can support organizations who are doing this type of work. Because like I said, you know, it starts with the, with, with the, uh, you know, economic oppression of people that really is also then to me the beginning stages of violence and all types of violence, which is inclusive of, you know, systemic violence. Um, so think about that. Think about how, you know, poverty and oppressing people in that way um, really, you know, impacts us as a community and creates, or I guess, keeps us at this level in which uh, we're constantly being harassed and or uh, profiled. Well, I, th I think uh, a lot of folks don't realize that um, the 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 problems with with the, we talked a little bit with our previous guest about. Uh, the kind of boom and bust in San Francisco where, you know, it's really, really tight, then it crashes and it's really, really tight again. And without a change in our economic policy, without a change in a number of policies, um, 
It's all, it's going to continue being that way. People right. will continue to be at each other's throats over these things because we're not dealing with the fundamental thing, right. which is that there's not enough housing in the city. And so then when we do get to, you know, then when we're flush and we're, we're booming again, and so we're building, well, of course, the people who can build are going to be building stuff. For, to, that's when they're going to cash in because in five more years, they're going to be crashing again. And, and it's, it's unfortunate that the government has largely pulled out of affordable housing. Mm-hmm. You know, for decades, uh, it's been kind of going smaller and smaller and smaller to now where the federal government does almost nothing. Mm-hmm. There are tax credits. There's some some local bonds you can get through the state or other bonding agencies. But even those are what's called thin subsidies. They don't provide a lot. So if you're going to develop affordable housing, it's incredibly expensive. And in a city like San Francisco, where we talked about where there's not a lot of land anyway, and it's expensive and all the, you know, then there's just all the local control stuff you go through that adds millions of more dollars to it. It becomes very, very impossible. So Mm -hmm. um, I think groups like hers and I I think other groups really kind of need to work on major policy changes because otherwise this, this will not change and, and you will have more neighborhoods that just go through total flip. Thank you so much for that. Somebody said it. Yes, it's also up to who we elect locally <gasps> and, and force them to do their job. All right, so let's turn our attention to what's happening here, um, a national crisis in America, and that is this topic of racism that you know has existed here in this country forever, since the birth of America. And we, unfortunately, even though it's been 50 years past the civil rights or more than 50 years past the civil rights movement, uh, we're still talking about race and the tragedies that the black community faces. So I want to make sure that this show also becomes a platform for these voices in hopes that if you're tuning in and, and you're joining in on the controversy, which I don't even think that it should be contro- a controversial discussion in terms of if blue lives matter or black lives matter, um, let's, uh, let's, let's hear from the community itself. So let's welcome Eugene, Greg, to the program. Eugene, thanks so much for being with us. No problem. How are you? Uh, we're good. We're good here. I should I should note that I know Eugene uh, because Eugene used to do a segment here on the program, um, and uh, you called yourself Tavi B. Tavi B. <laughs> and and uh, no, I, we miss you so much. But unfortunately, you're here back on. Um, you know, I've seen you and and have read some of your work and have really transformed and being more vocal about kind of you, your personal life, rather than, you know, Tavi B, which was much more entertainment. Um, With everything that's happening and going on, I mean, you have been incredibly vocal about being a young black gay man. Let's start with that. Yeah, um, I guess going to my school in Southern California, finding my, uh, I guess, my prominent voice, unapologetic voice, was very important um, because I'm around a lot of people who don't look like me and who don't get where I'm coming from. Um, So, you know, like coming from a queer community in San Francisco and being used to a community of people of color who are also queer and get that intersectionality versus going to Southern California and Camarillo, which is like the Sacramento of L.A., just very (laughs) unpopulated my school also used to be a, a mental asylum, so we're like four miles away from the city. It's just very different. And so there's only so much a person can be like very passive about. And at this point in the day and age where information on police brutality and violence against queer people like Orlando or just like 
the trans community, it's, you know, like, inexcusable. Like, everyone has access to this information. It's the year of technology, or I guess the century of technology, where, like, everyone has access to all this information. And not talking about it, not vocalizing about it, is, you know, due to violence. Like, oh, I don't want to say this to this person because I might be shut down, or they might try to gaslight me and say that my experience is something else that's not. So that's pretty much why I've become more vocal, because I'm tired of not being vocal. <laughs> One thought I had on after the uh, Minnesota killing, uh, Philando Castillo, I believe, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly, was not just the horror of what happened, but then later learning this guy had been stopped something like 50 times previously. For mm-hmm. life. And it's like, you know, I'm a middle-aged white guy. I, I, you know, you, yes, I really notice these things when these, the, the really tragic fatal thing happens. And, but when you don't have those popping up in the news, a lot of times we don't realize that, yeah, but you know, all during this so-called quiet time, these people are being stopped. They're being harassed they're being followed and all that kind of stuff. Can you give us a sense of, uh, you know, what, what that feels like? I mean, on a day-to-day basis, it would drive me crazy. Um, on a day-to-day basis, what it feels like. Well, I guess it feels like you're being targeted. Mm-hmm. Have you, I guess the general question to everyone else, have you gone somewhere and someone said something and you were just, like, completely appalled? Well, yeah. I mean... Of course. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So, like, imagine that feeling every time you have an interaction with the police. And even though there's, like, nothing being said yet, like, even before the conversation starts or the interaction begins, like, just you being pulled over, Mm -hmm. like, that immediate anxiety and that immediate fear and that immediate, like, blood boiling comes in the suit right before there's even, like, words exchanged. Um, and so feeling that 24-7, or even not knowing who your accomplices are or your allies are, is very troubling as well. Because, I, for example, on Facebook, <laughs> I was um, had to recently unfriend this girl who was Latina, but she passes for white. So a lot of her interactions in life have been, you know, as a white woman, basically, um, until she reveals that she is indeed not white. Um, so we were, we were basically talking about my poem that I wrote for an HIV uh, benefits concert at Neck of the Woods in San Francisco, and I had mentioned how healthcare professionals treat black and brown bodies um, with their, like, whether it be mental um, issues or health-related issues, like they treat it as a nuisance, which is basically like, oh, you can, you know, sleep this off, or the issue's not that serious. And these are, this is a saying that, um, has evidence to it and has been researched. Mm-hmm. And she was basically claiming, like, oh, like, I don't think it's true, you know, basically just gaslighting. And so me and my Facebook friends had explained to her several times, like, you know, like, why this is racist and you can't overwrite people's history and real experiences, especially if you're not black or dark-skinned or you passed for white. It's a reality that she hasn't experienced, but just because she hasn't experienced it doesn't mean that it wasn't real. And then she decided to post a picture of her and her four black friends from high school saying about how she wasn't racist and how she gets to struggle. And it's almost, <laughs> for those who don't get it, think of it as Donald Trump posing with a bunch of, like, Latinos or Hispanics or Chicanos or Chicanas being like, oh, um, 
they, they get why I'm doing this, and they get the mission. This is very offensive. Well, wait, wait. To defend Donald Trump, he did pose with his uh, Mexican salad that, and for that one photo. So, <laughs> you know, let's not forget. He's in tune with the hood. Eugene, right, I, you totally get that. I know that we uh, we have a few more minutes with you um, before you've got to go back to work. And, and here's that, that there's there's this reality, too, too, that most of us, you know, are working and trying to make it and trying to, to pay our bills. And for someone like you, Eugene, I mean, you know, on top of that, have to deal with um, police brutality. That that is what we're trying to talk about is this, you know, this quality of life that is right. not equal. Um, Talk to us a little bit about, you know, I know that Black Lives Matter and the social movement for someone like you who is always using social media, that has been helpful. But what feels like, you know, what what do you feel like you need right now from even your own circle of friends that are not black? I need solidarity, unapologetic solidarity. I also need accountability. So if you mess up, and you know that you have royally messed up, you need to claim it. And when someone calls you out on it, um, you need to take form responsibility for it. And rather than trying to explain yourself and trying to say all these things that you've done for the community or for your friends that prove you as an ally or an accomplice, you need to just hold yourself accountable and do better. That's literally it. And whether that be donating, out there protesting, calling out, your other non-black friends who practice anti-blackness, that is being a true community member. Um, there's even a news story of a girl jumping in front of a police baton to defend a black person at a protest. Like, things like that that actually prove that you care about black bodies and black lives. Wow, that is, uh, that's powerful. I mean, I can't say that I've jumped in front of a baton, but I think that might be something that I will consider for you, Eugene, absolutely. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, I think that uh, we're out of time on this segment, and you need to get back to work, right? Yes. (laughs) I will let you get back to work, and uh, thank you so much for taking some time out to be with us and to share your thoughts. I think it's really important that people hear from you. Thank you so much for having me, and anytime. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. John Zipper and I will conclude the show and uh, share some final thoughts, so don't go away. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life 
and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this Tuesday. It feels really good to be back and to be talking about these important issues that impact our community. Um, I think, you know, kind of what I was thinking while putting this show together and our guests was that these are real uh real people's lives. These are real experiences that they have. And, you know, we can't take that away. And I, I, it makes me sad. Like, I hate social media. Like, I hate talking about social media. It kind of makes me feel like I'm reducing myself um, when I talk about social media. But it's a part of our life now, right, John? Yep. Um, and I'm reading people's comments, and it's like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I'm, I, I, I had to take a break from Facebook because it was getting so incredibly frustrating to hear people's opinions that um i felt you know i'm surprised by even people who are part of my family or friends you know who would think that way uh in that way meaning that you know i don't agree with what they're saying um that's vague but we'll just i don't know well like for example you know what happened the tragedies uh, you know, the shootings and that had occurred, uh, right? Alton yeah. Sterling and Philando. Um, it, it, and then the, the shootings in Dallas, right? And then it all of a sudden became this focus on the cops against the black community. And then you had people who were like, you know, blue lives matter. And it's like, what are you talking about? Yeah, I, I mean, this is, I'll, I'll join your bandwagon against social media because I, I kind of started tuning out from my Facebook feed because all kinds of people, well-meaning, I guess, posting all these things and getting on the whole, well, you know, Black Lives Matter. And if you're saying all lives matter, you're, you're bad because of the, it's like, you're, you're not helping. You're not doing anything. Right. Actually, that's more important. You're not doing anything. You right. Know, if you want to do something, do something. But coming up with a meme in which you probably have misspelled some of the words anyway, <laughs> and then pass it along and hope it gets shared a lot, that that's not... That's not participating in democracy. I do want to bring up something that uh, Dr. James Taylor, he's the uh, director of the African-American Studies uh, Department and a professor of political science at University of San Francisco. He was on my program. Uh, you'll all hear him this Friday. Um, he's, he's talked about how there, there have been studies done with white liberals, not just whites, but specifically white liberals in New York and San Francisco. And when things like this happen, you know, some horrible shooting and, and, and such, and there's, there's protests and such, they actually have increased support then for a police response. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I just got goosebumps and chills because it's all that I've been talking about well, for the I'm last- I'm going to Facebook that and I want you to like it. <laughs> it was the last 72 hours that I can talk about. Um, you know, for me, I'm, I'm not black. I'm Asian um, and I'm Southeast Asian. You know, so I'm a, a, a latecomer to this country. My parents didn't come here until the late 70s. And so, you know, I have parallel experiences to the black community, but I'm not going to claim those experiences and then stand on their work to then elevate my agenda. Uh, that to me is not, you know, it's not doing anyone any good other than what you had said, actually contributing to this dialogue of controversy that is divisive. 
And so then it takes the focus away from what the community actually really needs, which are the policy changes that you talk about. And it takes the focus away from the people who actually really need to do the freaking work. And those are the people that we've elected to office. And meanwhile, those people are kind of chilling out in an air-conditioned room somewhere, smoking a cigar, completely dark and silent about these issues, and we're not attacking them and making them go to freaking work. Instead, you know, we're on social media, and we're going to work 14 hours a day. We're fighting with each other. I mean, do people actually recognize and realize this? What I get so irritated and upset about now that we're focused on these progressives, uh, the, the extremely radical left who, you know, will put out a Facebook meme or something like that and think they've done justice or good for our community is that, you know, <laughs> is, is, is that's just it. That's all you're doing. And anyway, I, I have a lot of feelings about that, that maybe that could be a, an entirely separate show. Um, th there's no, what I'm trying to say is like, where are you when the work needs to be done? And there's so many people who will stand by and say, you know, you know, Michelle, you're being exclusive because what if I can't be out there on the front lines or I can't, you know, uh, be out there creating a speech or something like that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not I'm not trying to discuss ableism right now. What I'm trying to discuss is the fact that, you know, where are you when it's time to vote? Where are you and your money when which who what? You know what I mean? Like, where are you calling out the politicians that we need to calling, you know, Congress or like doing all this stuff that we need to do? Because as all of this was going on and the LGBTQ community was arguing against black lives versus non-black lives, uh, Congress is now discussing a federal bill that may discriminate the LGBTQ community uh, in general. Right. This religious freedom, you know, federal bill thing. D did you hear about this? That one I haven't. But it does not surprise me because, of course, <laughs> instead of fi actually fixing anything, they can do one of these little vanity bills. It's called the First Amendment Defense Act. And oh, this well, was... we're all for the First Amendment. Let's vote for it. <laughs> yes, this was introduced uh, on the, uh, the guess, first uh, by month. Louis Gohmert. No, no, no. I'm, I'm saying that this Somebody is how. No, no, no. Hold on. How horrible this bill is. I mean, okay. I mean, in terms of it, this was introduced on the, uh, you know, it only it was the anniversary of the Orlando shooting Jeez. and talking about the LGBTQ community and people of color. But yeah, exactly one month after that shooting, um, Republicans in the House held a hearing on whether to let American business owners and government contractors refuse service to LGBT people. So where's the radical left now? you know, in kind of like, this is what exactly what I'm freaking talking. I'm trying not to cuss. <laughs> We're online radio. Yeah. I think uh, you can do that. I know. I know. But, I'm, you know, preserve my opportunities to We're one day be show. on the air. <laughs> well, I, obviously I agree. I mean, it, it's, I understand the, the people who, who really get worked up and have feel there is no other outlet other than, you know, complaining, but, um, you really want to do stuff, of course, vote. You really want to make sure your candidate, if you want to multiply your vote, then go out for your candidate and be one of those people who drives older voters to the voting poll. Be like my mother who will not only work at a polling place, but will be making phone calls for Hillary Clinton. You know, I mean, there's a lot of that. And then there's all the people who go even further. And it's interesting. I've read this actually from a number of females who've gotten into, into politics, including Nancy Pelosi and such. A lot of them got to that point where they, they had never considered it before for themselves. Mm -hmm. It was never something they thought of actually getting into. 
And then either they kind of fell into it or someone finally said, well, why don't you do it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they did. And of course, they're, you know, they become very accomplished at it because, you know, they can actually start making these laws and being in that room mm-hmm. with the people smoking the cigars. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we need to understand that the, the democracy is doing that stuff. It's, it's not the screaming at each other. The screaming at each other. Okay, so the, I want to go back and, you know, I, it sounds like I'm picking on radical lefts. And uh, if you listen to the program, if you know me or, you know, you talk to me, I probably am, you know, borderline between a radical <laughs> left and an extreme left. Like, you know, some of the the, the stuff that I work on, uh, I'm ta- I, I shouldn't generalize it in that way. It just seems that those are, if you think that you're doing good by posting a photo or saying something that is in support of, you know, people of color and the issues that they face specifically the black community in this situation i really think that you should dig deep into kind of what you're saying and if you think that that could in fact um uh you know backfire on what we're trying to do here because that creates division that's what all i'm trying to say so it may not just always be the radical left it could be any of us uh and who mistakenly do that and i think that like i think that if we're going to say something it should be that we are also committed to doing the work yeah. And and not necessarily just kind of saying it to to be inflammatory or something like that. Uh, I know so many activists in that way who just kind of say things to like get people all riled up. And you think that you're kind of a saint because you're sticking up for the little guy. Well, you know, at the same time, the little guys need you to step aside because we recognize that a lot of those people who are passing around the memes are people of privilege. And people who are, uh, you know, working for these tech who have companies. have the time to sit at f- on, on their computer and <laughs> yeah. or on their phone. Yeah, you're not Facebook. necessarily homeless on the streets, right. but yet everything you say about, you know, people not caring about homeless issues makes you seem like you are, in fact, on the street. And you're not. You're comfortable in your $100 sweats from Lululemon or whatever it is that you're wearing. All I'm trying to say is that, you know, don't create the vision. Don't add to the problem you know, be a part of the solution. And sometimes it's okay for you to stay silent and just step aside for the people to do the work. So, you know, in terms of issues concerning the black community, I think it's very important for us to let black people lead black people. It's okay if you as a white person or non, you know, uh, black person, and you're used to that privilege and that power because you have spoken up about these issues, it's okay for you to relax and chill the F out. And let us take care of our community because we know what the issues are. Or I shouldn't say we because I'm not black as well. But like black, you know what I mean? Let black people lead and not question, okay, well, well, you know, you're organizing in this way. I have a different tool that you could use. And I know this person. It's not about you necessarily. Right. Anyway, see, I, I think that we could do an entire show on this topic. So this is why I, I, I love having you on. And I think on. you would do it all in one breath too. <laughs> one long sentence. It should be a forum at the Commonwealth Club. Anyway. If you missed the Commonwealth Club Forum, by the way, we do have the the link on YouTube. We have the podcast that John and the Commonwealth Club team put together. By the way, by the way thank you to your entire staff. You guys are amazing. Um, and if you want to listen to anything else that we do together, you can head to commonwealthclub.org slash meow. Uh, or you can go to my website, michellemeow.com. Everything's there, including uh, television episodes. And just as much as I'm trying to catch up here i'm also trying to catch up there if you have any questions for me you know feel free to contact me or if you've got show ideas thanks so much for joining us we're here every day monday through friday four o'clock pacific standard time we'll talk to you soon